none, which means uh, seed, continue, air, and sun. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it. I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept, O Lord, the willing praise of my mouth. Teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I am not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. Good stuff. Good stuff. Okay, we have uh, uh, the list of people that uh, right here, everybody that's set in names of people that uh, are not saved, and we'll uh, pray for all of them cumulatively when we give our prayer. And we also have a couple prayer requests here. Uh, the first one is from a lady I know, Susan Bonner. Uh, she said, this is not, I'm going to read the whole thing. She said I could. This has not been a good year for my family. Charlie, that's her husband, is suffering severe leg pain that they say is not ALS, maybe DIA, tick nerve, uh, can't get treatment because of the virus. I've been suffering from depression since January. On March 25, her husband and his son said I wasn't doing well as his caregiver and asked me to leave so they could get another caregiver and his sons would also take care of him. I've been living with my son since then. They gave me a price of a room with an attached bathroom and a shower and a tub and they knock on my door when it's time for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. She says, I've lost 15 pounds and was dehydrated. I'm in my grandson's bedroom and he's been sleeping in the basement. My son, his wife, and two sons have been sharing the other shower in the master bedroom. So you can see it's a difficult situation for all of them. Charlie always told me, I, I'm not going to read that part, but um, uh, my niece in Florida told us April 8th that she has liver cancer. She's taking chemo and is very weak. So all this is burdening her down. Um, my parents who are in quarantine in their assisted living facility don't know. They've been worried about me, and we need to tell them about my niece, Annette. So please pray for our family. Uh, then she came back later, and she said um, Annette in Florida is extremely weak, and she needs a blood transfusion. And they did tell Susan's parents. They're devastated. So the whole family needs prayer. But Susan is just, I could tell from the stress of the letter that she'd sent. She's just very worn out. And uh Nina is in the hospital. She's very anemic and running tests now. And Jill has an absolutely crazy neighbor. She sent me a long email about her neighbor. And believe me, this, this is bad. She feels threatened by her actions. So we want to pray for Jill because I wouldn't want to have that around me. Um, but anyway, uh, we'll just leave it with the crazy neighbor there. And um, so uh, we'll pray for them, but we'll start with a prayer because it is the National Day of Prayer. We'll start with a prayer for the nation and for our president. So here we go. 7 May 2020, most glorious, all wise, and all knowing God, Father of all tender mercies, righteous judge of all matters, hidden in secret or open and evident, director of the nations and beloved of those who have called on you through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Today we come before you to petition you for this nation, but hardly as a nation other than one which appears almost hopelessly divided. There is a chasm, an ever-expanding chasm, in our land between good and evil, between what is moral and proper and what is vile and perverse. The breach cannot be healed by our efforts, this is certain, but it can be healed by you. And so, Lord God, we look to you and your guiding wisdom to lead this nation back to you and to the truth of who you are and what you have done for man through the span of human history. 
especially by leading us to the knowledge of your glory as displayed in the coming of Christ. Our nation once recognized this and openly sought to pursue that knowledge and to share it with others, but that great and noble calling is left to fewer and fewer as our years have passed. Now, not only have many forgotten this glorious calling, but an entire portion of them actively and openly work against it. Lord God, you are above politics, but the devil is not. He has steadily worked through one party to destroy the godly fabric of this nation, gnawing away at its very cores, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In exchange for those worthy callings and through this unholy group who stand opposed to you, Satan's offer, Satan offers death for our unborn, bondage through governmental control and lies, bitterness, and hatred towards those principles which grant us these worthy pursuits. And more. They, without restraint or shame, speak the vilest lies against our president and any who support him in his goal to restore common decency to this nation. They embody the words you gave through, the, through Isaiah the prophet. They have called evil good, and that which is good they have called evil. They have exchanged light for darkness, and they have taken what is sweet and exchanged it, exchanged it for bitterness. Lord God, see their ways, act according to your wisdom, and grant favor to your people who are trying to uphold those righteous principles which founded were founded on a knowledge of you as our creator, your word as our guiding light, and the exercise of faith in your glory revealed in Christ our Lord. We cannot mince words in our prayers to you, O God. We cannot hide the truth that the unholy path which has been taken by your foes is filled with many feet and many voices. We look to you to stem this unfavorable tide to restore us to us leaders who are willing to exalt you above all else, to tend to the affairs of this nation with righteousness and godliness, and to stand against those who so desperately want for us that which is offered by the devil. We raise up President Trump in our prayers for wisdom and wise decisions, and we certainly pray for his re-election in November. We raise up any leader who is willing to stand against the scourge of abortion, against indolence, against perversion of all kinds, and who will vote in accord with their stand. We pray for new appointments to our Supreme Court, people of faith in you, reason in their judgments, and who are willing to stand up against the tyranny and oppression offered by those on the left. And finally, Lord God, we do thank you for your kind hand upon us as a people. We have been given such blessing and bounty more than any people in the history of the world. And yet we have been ungrateful for what we possess. May our hearts and souls hereafter be sure to shower you with the praises and thanks you are due for our bounty. And if that should be taken from us as a punishment for our failures, please grant us enough strength and wisdom to continue to thank you even in our lack. You, O oh God, are God. You are righteous, just, and holy, but you are also gracious and merciful. Today we look to you in anticipation that we will survive as a people but only so far as we are willing to acknowledge you and your glory. And it is to your glory that we pray today and forever in the precious and exalted name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Lord, we also add in the prayers for the salvation of people that were mentioned and also these prayer requests that were brought to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. And we ask that you bless this time together in this study as well. Amen. We are in one, 2 Corinthians, thank you, 1133. All right. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. 
the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of Damascus guarded in order to arrest me. But, 33, I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hand. Okay, this is 11.33 comments. Here Paul details how he made his escape from Damascus. His words here explain the things which concern my infirmity. There are other examples of people escaping in such a manner in the Bible. One is found in Joshua 2, verse 15. So we'll go back there really quickly and take a look at Joshua 2, 15. And it says there, we'll go back a little bit. Um, now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also shown kindness to my father's house, and give me a true token, and spare my father and my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. This is Ruth the harlot speaking. Rahab. Oh, I'm sorry, thank you. Uh, Rahab the harlot, the ancestor. I'm thinking of Ruth, her great, yeah. Anyway, so the... Uh, uh, men answered her, our lives for you. If none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land, that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Verse 15, then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterward, you may go your way. So that was a narrow escape for him. And then we have another one in 1 Samuel chapter 9. So we'll take you there. Does anybody know what I'm going to turn to? 1 Samuel 9? David. David, that's right. Close escape for David. So we'll go to 1 What's Samuel. That's right. There was a man of Benjamin. Uh, uh, I said 1 Samuel. It's got to be 2 Samuel. Uh, oh, I'd say 12. Uh, yeah, it's got to be 2 Samuel. I put 1 Samuel, but it's got to be 2. And because David wasn't even in the picture in 1 Samuel 9. But once again, that's me with my poor, uh, yes, um, let's see here. Um, okay, so uh, we'll go back just a little bit. We'll go to 10. Then Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So then they went to the city where the man of God was. Um, no, that's not what I want either. 1 Samuel 9, 12. That's what I want, and that's not it. So it's where David was released. Um, he was being chased by uh uh, Samuel, and that's not at all what I'm looking for. So, uh, uh, yes, being did I say Samuel? I'm yes. all you know what? I've had a miserable earache for the past three days. Miserable, I can't concentrate, and I didn't even know if I was going to come to class today. So, anyway, but my note is wrong, and it's a narrow escape by David where his uh wife put a uh, teraphim in the bed. Um, to hide him, and then he escaped out that way. So forgive me, I put the wrong reference there, and uh, I'm not going to go looking for it all day. Anyway, what is explicit in the Joshua account, and which may be inferred from the story of David, is that these men let themselves down by a rope, which was thrown over the side for them. Let me make a note that I have the wrong thing there. Anyway, um, however, in Paul's case, he had to be let down by a basket. It shows that he was too infirm on his own to climb down a rope. Thus, he seems to be hinting at the shame he felt for having to rely on others to deliver him in this way. It was in a basket through a small opening in the wall called a thurus that he was led down. The thurus is only mentioned twice in the Bible, once here and once in Acts 20, verse 9, where Eutychus fell out of the window he was sitting in. Such little windows or doors were placed into the walls of a city for those who dwelt in houses along the wall. Paul was able to get free from his foes in this manner. Of interest, 
is that the word basket that Paul uses here is not the same as that used in Acts 9 verse 5. There it was called a spuris, which is a tightly wound plated basket of reeds. Here Paul calls it a sargane or sargani. This is a plated rope basket. This is the only use of the word in the Bible. This probably comes from the Hebrew word sarag, which means intertwined. Okay, thus the same idea is conveyed for both words. If this comes from sarag, which is likely, Paul is subtly continuing with his comparison of himself to the false apostles by using a word of Hebrew rather than Greek origin. So you can see why he changed from the Greek to a Hebrewish based word is to show that he is not less than the false apostles that he was speaking of. Anyway, it's kind of an interesting thing. Spuris and uh, the other word once again is sargani. All right, life application. God uses those who are dependent on him, and often that dependence on him is realized in the assistance of others. Paul was placed in a situation where he needed the help of others in order to find his relief. There's nothing wrong with showing such dependence on those around us, especially when we realize that God placed them in our lives for that very reason. So there you go with that. That's uh, Paul showing his, uh, we would say, feebleness, his inability to escape on his own. But more, I think I said this recently, maybe not, is that uh, Paul, all through the book of Acts, you can infer that he is being led everywhere he goes. Wherever he goes, he's never unaccompanied. If he has to go to the shore, somebody takes him down there. If he has to go somewhere, somebody will meet him there. And it's probably because he was infirm, most likely in the eyes. That is uh, the general consensus. Uh, when Paul wrote letters, his defining characteristic was very large letters. That's right, a sign of uh, ocular degeneration. Okay, he also uh, said to the Galatians, which we'll see very soon, that, uh, you know, when I came to you, you were willing that you would tear out your eyes from me and give them to me. It's a sign that that they had, if they were able to, they would have given them his eyes. And then he was standing in the same room with the high priest, and he said something nasty to the high priest. He says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. And what did the people around him say? How dare you revile God's high priest? And he says, well, I didn't know it was the high priest. Now, he could have said it in jest. He could have said it mockingly. He could have said it Truthfully, you know, we don't know, we don't get, it's like sending an email. You can get angry at somebody for an email that's totally innocent. With the Bible, sometimes you'll not be able to infer what a person is actually thinking when he says something, but he did say it. He was in the same room, and the people, even if he knew it was the high priest, could not accuse him because they would have known that his eyes were bad. There are other evidences as well that Paul did have bad eyes, and uh, it, that is probably, not definitely, but that is probably the thorn in the flesh that Paul speaks of. But we don't know that for sure. Anyway, these kind of things we have to take, uh, you know, just kind of in a roundabout way, and we can't be dogmatic about him. But if you follow the book of Acts closely, you will notice that Paul is always accompanied by somebody. And it's probably for exactly that reason. He was unable to take care of himself. And he's alluding to that right now in this particular passage. So, 12.1, we're in another chapter, the last chapter. No. Isn't it? T chapter 12? No, we got 13 too. Okay. Wow, we got a long way to go then. We do. We better get cracking there, Chief. I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions, to revelations from the Lord. Okay, good stuff. Paul's first words can be taken in a couple of ways. One is that they might be an ironic statement to the Corinthians when he says, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. 
He might be saying, as you can see, I have done nothing worthy of boasting. I have not suffered at all, as my previous words testify quite clearly. This is the highest of irony because everything he has said from verse 11:22 through 33 shows that he had, in fact, suffered greatly for Christ. Further, he had gone to extreme lengths to preach the gospel. The second way his words might be taken would be as an admission that it was unbecoming of him to continue to boast in the manner which he had through previous verses. He felt that it was improper, but that he was urged on by the fact that the Corinthians were looking for just this type of thing to boast in. Whichever way his words are to be taken from this boasting, which was doubtless not profitable, that's Paul's words, he turns to a new line of thought with the words, I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Paul's visions and revelations are noted throughout the book of Acts. The word visions is described well by Albert Barnes. Paul, uh, Albert Barnes says it is used in the scriptures often to denote the mode in which divine communications were usually made to people. This was done by causing some scene to appear or to pass before the mind as in a landscape so that the individuals seem to see a representation of what was to occur in some future period. It sounds like television today, doesn't it? That's what we would think of when we have, you know, that kind of a thought. It was usually applied to prophecy and is often used in the Old Testament. So there you go with that. And if you watch a person that is in a movie and they're seeing a prophecy like Jeremiah or something, that's exactly what they display. It's like this thing passing in front of their eyes. So it's always cool to see how what Albert Barnes said way before TV was kind of what we would see in somebody's imagination while they're making a movie about somebody seeing a vision that looks like something on a TV. So there you go. Revelations. The word revelations would be the truths which were learned as a result of the visions. So you have the visions and from them you obtain revelations. At least six times in the book of Acts, he had specific visions that are recorded. Also in Galatians 2 verse 2, we read this. I went up by revelation and communicated to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run vain. Life application, Paul claimed to have visions because he was an apostle of the Lord. His visions led to his revelations, and they have become a part of the Holy Bible. However, the apostolic period is over. It is best not to accept any supposed vision from the Lord at this time. I'm not one to say that people have not had visions and revelations, but I would suggest that you do not accept them, okay? Because people have dreams all the time, and they think it's from God. People, you know, maybe have psychotic episodes, and they think it's from God. People may, you know, have had too much cough, uh, cough syrup, whatever. Okay, we don't need these things for our life and doctrine and practice. The reason why is because we have the Word of God. The Bible says we live by faith and not by sight. Okay, if we have sight, then we don't need faith. And so, if people have visions, that is fine. I don't need any proof of visions from anybody, and I don't need anybody to tell me that they've had a vision and it proves that they're this type of a Christian or that type of a Christian or they've gone to heaven or any of that kind of stuff. That doesn't interest me. The only thing that interests me is this word right here. Okay, so if somebody has a vision, that's fine. They should probably just keep it to themselves and God because it's not going to be inserted into the pages of the Bible. What's his name? Uh, Joseph Smith thought that it should be. He wrote another uh, gospel, the uh, Book of Mormon, another gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's 
on his way to the fiery furnace. That's where that guy is going, okay? So the best thing to do is to stay away from visions. Another one here, right? False visions have led to entire cults of people being led astray. Now, who is to say that your vision is true and their vision is false? You see what I'm saying? We don't know. We, we can't make that determination. But we do know that these people's visions were false now. There's no doubt, such as those of Ellen G. White of the Seventh-day Adventists, okay? We know this is false. One, she's not supposed to be a teacher. The Bible forbids it for her as a woman, 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. And you can get some other verses out of the Corinthians, the letters to the Corinthians. But we'll stick with 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. It is explicit. There's no way to work around it, okay? Plus a million other references in the Bible that say that men are to be uh, the elders and deacons, such as uh, an elder or a deacon is to be the husband of but one wife. Okay, well, that makes it implicit that a woman cannot be an elder or a deacon because she's, that's right, they don't have wives. So, I mean, there's all kinds of hints like that. Ellen G. White violated scripture. God would not talk to her. Secondly, Ellen G. White had visions and revelations of seeing heaven, and they do not match the Bible. That's correct, okay? And then she made all kinds of false prophecies, which any other uh, time in uh what would I say, redemptive history, they would have taken her out and stoned her. Instead, they give her a denomination and they still idolize her to this day. So, uh, false prophet Tess, it is far better to stick to the Bible than worry about whether someone's supposed vision is true. As I said, if somebody's had a vision, that's fine. They can talk about it all they want. They can do whatever they want with it, but it is not going to be used by Charlie Garrett for doctrine or for teaching or instruction, or I'm not going to refer to it ever, okay? It's just, that's not my thing. Even if it is true, my, my comments now, which is unlikely, it is unnecessary for proper faith and practice, okay? Fine. I understand a lot of people have emailed me with visions over the years, and that's fine. I don't, dis, I don't doubt them. I don't disagree with them, but they are not going to be a part of my practice. I'm never going to say, well, this person had a vision and blah, blah, blah. Not going to happen. Okay, so there you go with that. Um, 212, 12-2. Two. What? Your, your, your reference is 19. Instead of nine. Oh, First Samuel, 19. 1 Samuel 9, 19. 19. Well, then I'm going to go there really quickly so that people know exactly. Thank you. You know, I mean, it's 1 Samuel. It is right. Okay, so I just, I my finger probably just deleted a one. I got the one Samuel right. 1 Samuel 19. We're going to go there really quick just so that we have it. Thank you for finding that. Um, yeah, that's what happens when you... Uh, Type wrong. Okay, yeah, here it is. So Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. And Michal took an image and laid it in the bed, put a cover of goat's hair for his head, and covered it with clothes. So when Saul's messengers uh, so when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers back to see David saying, bring him up to me in the bed, then I may kill him. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image, the teraphim in the bed with a goat's cover of goat's hair for his head. Okay. And then it goes on from there. Why did you deceive me? And well, you, you know, it's the whole story just goes on and on. So, but that shows you that, uh, Rahab the harlot let those spies down through a rope. David probably went down through a rope, unless she had really long hair like Rapunzel. She may have put that and then let her climb down that. But anyway, he went out the window, and then from there, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Paul did not have that luxury, and he was let down in a basket. So thank you for finding that. Okay, um, let's see here. Um, 
12.2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Is that it for your verse? Okay, this one goes on. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Okay, so, um, oh, I see what it is. Yeah, yours is in the middle. Okay, they just changed the order of it. Okay, good, because Burke was over there letting it out too, so we both were confused. Anyway, okay, so it says the same thing. They just changed the order in yours. Okay, um, so verse one said, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I tell you, I'm going to be off my game all day today. I've just had, you know, when you have an earache, you're, you're just irritated. I mean, I, I just, poor Hidako, she probably must have thought I was mad at her, but I don't want to talk. The dogs are barking, got my hand over my head. And so it's just been like that. And I can't wait to get through with this. And it's almost done. Look, it doesn't hurt when I do that anymore. So, okay. Um, uh, verse one said, yeah, it could be. Um, first one said, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. This verse now moves into the third person, okay, to avoid any such hint of boasting. He says, I know a man in Christ. This is referring to himself. Everybody agrees in that. I don't know any scholar that thinks otherwise. There are a couple of ways of knowing that this is so. First, anyone else's visions wouldn't have had any bearing on his comments here. It's like me talking about other people's visions a second ago. That's fine. If you have vision, that's fine. I can't testify to your vision. It has no more bearing to me than Ellen G. White or anybody else, so I'm not going to testify to it. That's just the way it is. Okay? So, he would only talk about his own visions. They would be superfluous to the intent of his letter. Secondly, in verse 7, he moves to the first person, still talking about the same thing. Paul is accomplishing his feat of not boasting while still conveying a thought which the Corinthians could boast in concerning his status as an apostle. See what he's doing? He's having them be able to boast in him even though he's not boasting. Because what have they been doing? They've been boasting in other people, okay, who boast in themselves. So that's, Paul is masterfully weaving this together so that there's no boasting from him about his issues. Okay, this man, meaning himself, is, as he says, in Christ. He was, at the time of the occurrence, already a Christian. This is something he speaks of concerning the redeemed several times. One example is found in Galatians chapter 6. Let me take you there, where it says in Galatians 6, verse 15, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. The dating of this epistle can be fixed at 5758 AD, okay? That's the years that they're pretty sure that the dating of the epistle is, okay? Next, he says, it was 14 years ago. This would make the event he is writing about around 43-44 AD. Therefore, this is after his conversion, but it is something not specifically mentioned in the book of Acts. Speculation as to when and where the vision occurred is just that. It is only speculation. After this, he says, whether in the body, I do not know, or whether out of the body, I do not know, God knows. The vision was so real to him that he felt as if he was in a body, but yet he could not actually prove that he was. This resembles visions of the Old Testament, such as in Ezekiel chapter 8. So let me take you there really quickly. Ezekiel chapter 8, which uh, is a wonderful passage. Ezekiel 8 and um, uh, 9 are some of the most wonderful verses, as far as I'm concerned, in the book of Ezekiel. And they are, uh, especially chapter 9, are very scary 
also. But anyway, Ezekiel 8, I'm going to read you verses 1 through 4. And it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me. So there he's right there in front of a whole bunch of people, okay, that the hand of the Lord fell upon me there. Then I looked, and there was a likeness, like the appearance of fire from the appearance of his waist and downward, fire, and from his waist and upward, like the appearance of brightness, like the color of amber. He stretched out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my hair, and the Spirit lifted me up between heaven and earth, brought me in visions, in, in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the image of jealousy was, which provokes to jealousy. So here he is sitting with his friends and he's in a vision. He's not actually being transported to Jerusalem and yet he's actually being transported to Jerusalem. And what he sees is rather horrifying. Chapter 9, as I said, it uh, the message that the Lord is giving you there is in essence repent or be destroyed and judgment begins at the house of God. That's correct. Anyway, it's rather scary. Go read Ezekiel 8 and 9 tonight and think about it. As a matter of fact, when you do, think about the amount of time that it is from the time that the person with the writing horn is given to go out and make a mark on the people that are not to be killed, and then the Lord speaks to him, and then the man comes back and he says, I have done what you said. And in between that is one very short paragraph. In other words, there were not a lot of people that were saved from the Lord's wrath in that particular vision. Okay, think about that when you're reading it. Ezekiel said he had a vision while he sat in my house with the elders of Judah, wherein he was transported to Jerusalem having been taken by a lock of my hair. There he said, and heard, and experienced, and yet his body surely remained in his house. This may be something akin to what Paul experienced. The vision was so real that he simply couldn't tell the state of his earthly body at the time. Now, still referring to himself, he next says, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Nonsensical debates are made as to what Paul is referring to when he says the third heaven. I've, I've read entire commentaries on it that are just complete speculation. That's all they are. They're just people making stuff up. I've heard sermons on this where people just make stuff up and they say, this is the first heaven. This is The Bible doesn't delineate. He just simply says, I was taken up to the third heaven. If the Bible doesn't tell us, then we don't know. And so there's no point in making an hour-long sermon on something that you don't know, Okay. All that does is reduce people's theology. It does not increase it in any way, shape, or form. What we can deduce is that it is a real place and that it is other than where we are. People write lengthy commentaries on celestial gradations of what one heaven or another heaven is like, but it's all wasted ink. What we have from Paul is all that we need to understand the rest of the vision's details. As a point of interest, though, he uses the term, anybody harpazo, which is translated as caught up. This is the same term he uses for what believers will experience at their own rapture, which is noted in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 17. Let's go there just so that you know what I'm talking about. I'm sure none of you have ever heard of the rapture before, so we're, we're going to teach you rapture theology now for the first time in your life. 1 uh, Thessalonians 4, we'll go back to verse 13 and we'll just finish the chapter, but I do not want you to be ignorant brethren concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Okay, fallen asleep means died. But when you're in Christ, you're not dead. You are asleep in Christ. Okay, he uses that term. Four, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now, what did he just say about Jesus in that verse? 
Jesus died and rose again. Jesus didn't sleep. He died. He died for our sins. Whereas believers don't die, we sleep. Everybody see the marvel of what he just did there? It's wonderful. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, okay, so there's going to be a generation of people. I know people love to dismiss the rapture, but there will be a generation of people that are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead are going to come out of their graves in whatever way the Lord decides that will happen. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord near. You can't take those verses any other way than what they say. It is impossible unless you have a presupposition that this doesn't say what it says. It's very clear what it says. These people that are in the grave will come out and they'll meet with us in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. If you want more detail of that, I know you've never heard this rapture stuff before, but if you want more detail of it, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and read, just say from verse 45 to the end of the chapter, and you'll get some information there as well, okay? And a little bit more is in Revelation 4 verse 1, okay? I know people will dispute that, but that is what he's speaking about. Okay, so here we go. Um, that was... Um, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Thus, there is no reason to not believe in a literal rapture where our bodies will be changed and would be transported to be with the Lord. It happened to Paul. He was taken up to the third heaven, whatever that means, and it's going to happen to us too. Paul was harpazoed, okay? There's one other instance of a harpazo in Scripture. Who is it? Well, no, I'm talking about New Testament. No, not John. He, he had a vision. He had a vision, okay? He doesn't say he was harpazo. The word harpazo. Stephen, he was taken away from the Ethiopian. It says that he was taken away and he was found in Azotus. The word harpazo is used there too. He was literally transported. Okay, that's what it says. We have to take it at face value. He wasn't seen anymore. He was harpazo and he went over to Azotus. Okay, so there you go. Um, I believe those are the only three uses. I could be wrong on that. I, I just know that that one is a use of it. Okay, those who deny this must then deny Paul's vision in these verses. If you deny the rapture, then you have to deny Paul's vision because he's using the same terminology and he's saying the same thing was experienced. And he even says it could have been in his body or it may have been out of his body. I would say out of his body, why? Anybody? This is just my thinking on it. Because he writes elsewhere, what? That's right. He says, and the corrupt cannot inherit the incorruptible, okay, in 1 Corinthians 15. And so that would be my, my thought on it. It doesn't mean, I mean, what's his name? Uh, Elijah was taken to heaven, and he was in his body when he went. And he'll return in his real body along with another person, and they will stand in Jerusalem as the two witnesses. But um, for right now, uh, I, I would just think that he went out of body experience like Ezekiel did. But it was so real to him that he couldn't tell. That's the point that he's making. Anyway, and I could be wrong on that, so don't make a squiggle in your brain. I'm just theorizing that particular thing, okay? But with God, all things are possible. And so we have a life application. The Bible gives us enough information to understand what happened in certain circumstances only in a limited way. The admonition to not go beyond what is 
written. written. Thank you. The admonition to not go beyond what is written is good at such times. We should be careful to not make things up, stating them as a fact concerning things of which we cannot be sure of. In other words, when someone analyzes a passage such as that of Paul's vision, make sure that it is in line with his words, but it does not unnecessarily go beyond them. And if it does, as in a sermon, as I said, I've heard people preach on this and give you all kinds of information that isn't in the Bible, he should say, this is what I think. This is what I think. This is what I think. And he ought to repeat that every time he thinks something, because if not, that theology now gets into somebody's head and it's stuck there. And they have a presupposition that which should not be in their head because it has nothing to do with scripture. I will give you an example of that right now, is that when we go to the projects, we always see one wonderful lady. I'm not going to give her full name. I'll just give the first initial of her name so that we don't give away any secrets. The first initial is D, okay? So anyway, um, uh, we'll say Miss D is uh, in the projects, and she was talking about certain things, about the coming of the Lord and about prophecy and other things like that, okay? And she started citing, guess what? The Left Behind series. No, no. Yes, she was citing it. And then I said, well, I want you to know that that is actually not in the Bible. And she was so thankful to know that because she hadn't read those passages. She just took it at face value that what they were teaching was actually what's going to happen. And I said, that's a novel. And they just made a story. Okay. I've had people come up to me, you know, when I used to have the Bible class on the beach, the, uh, you know, Bible questions answered. And they would cite to me the left behind books and they would say, well, this is, I understand that's what's going to happen. I said, that's not even hinted at in scripture. You have about six or seven verses in all of the Bible that speak of the rapture, okay? There's not a lot of them, and yet people write books on them, and some of them are novels, and some of them are fanciful, supposed theology, but there's not that many verses. It's not that difficult to figure out the sequence of events and the timing, etc., but people cite these things, and it gets into their head, and they believe that that's what's going to happen, and that damage, that is damaging to to your theology if you allow that to happen. If you read a book and it says on the back of it, this is fiction, make sure that you take it as fiction, okay? I don't care who wrote it, Max Lucado or whoever is this supposed great Christian author or whatever, if it's fiction, it's fiction, okay? I don't know, I'm just, I know the name, I don't know the guy, so anyway. Uh, I've, uh, yeah, I've heard that, he's Church of Christ, anyway, which means that you have to be baptized in that church or you're not gonna go to heaven, all kinds of crazy stuff. I don't know if he believes that or not, but I've heard that. Anyway, I don't read people's books, so it doesn't matter. But um, uh, the point is that if you are listening to a sermon and a pastor is preaching on something, and it's something that he adds in that isn't in the Bible, and he doesn't tell you it's not in the Bible, that becomes a problem for his congregation. They believe that, whether it's true or not. Okay, You could go with any doctrinal issue as well. I'm not talking about just the rapture. I'm talking about anything. If he says something about some issue, pick a, pick an issue, anybody, uh, tithing, predestination. predestination, okay, I said tithing, you could say drinking, you could say whatever, and he just throws something in there, and people believe that's actually a part of that, and it's not. Be careful what you believe until you check it out, okay, even including this class, because I said something a few minutes ago that was my speculation. I qualified it with, this is speculation, but still, somebody may have clicked off right after I said that, now they think that's real, so Check out what you hear, okay? That's very important to always check out what you hear, okay? Um, I'll read this again. Life application. The Bible gives us enough information to understand what happened in circum certain circumstances in a limited way. The admonition to not go beyond what is written at such times is a good one. We should be careful to not make things up, stating them as fact concerning things of which we cannot be sure, 
In other words, when someone analyzes a passage such as Paul's vision, make sure that it's in line with his words, but it does not unnecessarily go beyond Paul's words. Okay, that's a really important point to remember. I don't care who is preaching. I don't care how long you've listened to him. You should always check what you have heard from the word itself. If it's a life application sermon, he's going to give you one verse or two verses for the whole sermon, and he's going to talk and talk and talk and talk. Okay, we all know that that's what life application sermons are like. They're to build you up. They're to edify you. But everything he says is to be taken with a grain of salt. The, if you have um, uh, focus on the family, Dobson. Okay, is that? Yeah, okay. And then you have another guy, very famous, and they're both uh, these Christian psychologists type of people, right? And they both wrote books on a particular issue, and they both came to exactly, literally, the opposite conclusions on how to counsel somebody on a particular issue. Exactly the opposite conclusions. I don't remember what the issue was. Complete, you can't get any further apart. Exact opposites. And yet people say, well, he's a specialist in what he's talking about, and he's a specialist in what he's talking about. Who do you believe? You have to have one source of who you're going to believe, and that is the Lord God. After that, everything else is suspect. Okay, so, 12.3. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God. Okay, this one says such a man. Okay, it's kind of a generality. He's not saying this man, but such a man. Same idea, though. Paul now seems to repeat himself for the purpose of emphasis. And many scholars generally take it that way. So far, the words of verse 2 and 3 can be compared by noting them side by side. Verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or whether out of the body, I do not know. God knows such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And then the next verse, and I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. In verse 3, he has added in the word he, or and. Thus, this then seems to indicate not emphasis of the same thought, but the introduction of a new thought. Verse 4 will bring that revelation to light. But regardless of what verse 4 says, Paul continues on with the same line of reasoning, which is found back in verse 2. He is referring to himself in the third person, and he is completely unaware of whether what he will describe actually occurred in the body or out of the body. To him, it remained an enduring mystery, which only God knows. The word weather is used in both verses. If there is a distinction being made between the two events, then he was unsure of his state in both circumstances as they occurred. Everybody got that? He says one thing in verse 2. Now he is leading into another thing with verse 3, which will be explained in verse 4. And he says weather. And if that's the case, then he didn't know in both of these circumstances. All right, there you go. Life application. Paul as an apostle of Christ, has the right to make the claim that he is making concerning his visions. His words are a part of the biblical record, and God used Paul for that very purpose. He will note that the things he saw and heard while in this state were unlawful for a man to utter. It would logically follow then that what he saw was not to be described by him, which he refrains from doing. And therefore, the same would apply to anyone else who claims to have, ha have made a heaven or have had a heavenly vision. Let me read that again. The same would apply to anyone else who claims to have made such a heavenly visitation. That's what I wanted to say. Okay, does everybody see the logic in that? Paul said he went to heaven and he heard things which were inexpressible, inexpressible, that nobody was to know. Okay, 
if somebody else claims that they have gone to heaven and they start describing what they saw to you, what does that tell you? That they are lying because Paul has just told you as an apostle of Jesus Christ in the word of God that what he saw was not to be expressed. God isn't going to change that for you or for me. Okay, so there you go with that. It is better not to trust the visions of others than it is to find out that their words were not true. In the end, we have the Bible, and so any extra revelations, even if true, and I'm not trying to dismiss people's visions and revelations. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to tell you that they are yours, and they belong to you, and they do not believe in, belong in the Word of God, and they are not to be accepted or believed by anybody else. If that happened to you, that is for your edification, that's fine. You don't need to share it with anybody else, and if you do, you could be causing harm to somebody else with something that you thought was a vision that wasn't a vision, okay? In the end, we have the Bible, and so any extra revelations, even if true, would not add to what we need for our faith and practice. So why buy the book, right? And then we find out that the book is untrue. Anyway, like the guy that wrote the vision, the story about having gone to heaven uh, just eight or ten years ago. And he sold millions of copies. Everybody was buying it, and then they find out that he lied. Okay? Don't buy the book. Don't buy books on heaven. Don't buy books on the rapture. Don't. Because if you want to know where the rapture is, it's right here. And if you want the verses, I'll give them to you. Just take them and read them. They're, the sequence of events in the rapture is so simple. It's so basic that all you need to do is just read this a few times and write it out, make your notes, or email me and I'll send you the, uh, the uh, timing of the rapture video I did a couple years ago and I can send that to you. You'll have all the information you need. Don't buy the book. Okay. The, shack? the what? Oh, the shack has got all kinds of stuff in that too, but I don't think he claimed that it was true. It was, no, this guy actually claimed he went to heaven or his son did or something. I don't know. Anyway, whatever. Okay, 12-4. Four. Okay, was caught up to paradise paradise he heard inexpressible things things that a man is not permitted to tell okay that's what i was just speaking about now we're going to talk about that okay he went to heaven he heard inexpressible things that a man is not allowed to tell so if somebody comes to you and says that they've been to heaven and they start telling you about it walk away walk away it's not true it can't be if paul said these words here okay once again with the two thoughts finished Placing them side by side gives a better perspective of Paul's statement. We're going to do what we did with the last verse. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. As can be seen, it is probable, but not entirely certain, that the terms the third heaven and paradise are not the same thing. He's likely saying that he was caught up to the third heaven as well as having been caught up into paradise. The word for paradise here is the same word as that used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament when referring to the Garden of Eden. It's the same word or the paradise of Eden. The word that was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is the same word that Paul is using now, which tells us that, guess what? God is going to restore all things, and heaven is what we were intended for. It's the same state, okay? We're just going to be returned to the state that it should have been, which is why the Bible makes this beautiful chiasm where you have all of the things happening in uh, the book of Genesis and the fall of man, and it goes on and on like this, and then they're all repeated in reverse order, 
in the book of Revelation where all that's restored. It's wonderful. The Bible just makes these wonderful patterns for us to follow. You know, you even Satan, he's introduced in the third chapter of the Bible and he exits the stage in the third chapter before the ending of the Bible. I mean, the whole thing is just so beautifully structured. It's just amazing. Anyway, okay, uh, this word, the paradise of Eden, the Greek, is found only three times in the New Testament. In Luke 23, 43, in 2 Corinthians 12, 4, and Revelation 2, verse 7. It is the reward which faithful believers will receive because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Paul says that while there he heard inexpressible words. In this there is either one, a paradox. He heard speaking which may not be spoken because it is impossible for us to express the same words. In attempting to do so, he would do injustice to what he had heard or Two, they are words which are not to be uttered by man at this present time. He was allowed to hear them, but forbidden from restating them. The second option seems more likely because of his final words, which says, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. The Bible scholar Bengal explains the verse in this manner. Others who did not hear them cannot Paul, who did hear them, is not sufficiently able, and though he were able, yet it would not be lawful. It would not be proper in the state of mortality, because the inhabitants of the earth would not understand them. Now, that's a pretty profound thought, if you think of what how Bengel put those words into action for our minds, is that it is so glorious that we can't even comprehend it. Words can't express it. And we can't communicate to anybody else without doing damage to what we are trying to tell them. It's that glorious. Life application. Verses 2 through 4 of this chapter show us that those who claim to have had visions of heaven and who then repeat them are most probably making them up. Now, I'm not going to accuse anybody of actually doing that, okay? If somebody has sent me a vision of heaven and a lot of people have told me all kinds of visions and stuff, and that's fine. And if they have, that's fine. That's between them and the Lord. They are the ones that have to stand before the Lord and explain why they were lying, if they were lying, or if they conveyed it wrong, they have to explain that, etc., etc. This is totally between the person and them. I'm talking about you in a doctrine sense, listening to people like Ellen G. White or what's his name, Joseph Smith of the Mormons, or 10 billion other people throughout the church age who have said they have had visions, got big cults of people around them, and they eventually faded away, and they, nobody was the better off because of it. Nobody. That's what I'm talking about there. Why would God have Paul state the things he did here and then change his way of dealing with people later? The answer is that he would not. We have just what we need in the pages of the Bible to satisfy our current walk with the Lord. Further, he has given us enough information about what is coming to let us know that wonderful things, truly wonderful things, lie ahead. That's all we need is just to wait. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Just keep waiting on the Lord. He will be here soon enough. Okay, 12.5. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weakness. Okay, so what did he just do? He went from the first person to the third person and now back to the first person. We know that he's speaking about himself in those intervening verses. Okay, I will boast about a person like that. It is obvious on the surface that Paul has been speaking of himself concerning the visions of the third heaven and of paradise. Therefore, the words of this verse are the epitome of irony. Still referring to those events as if they were someone else, 
he says, of such a one, I will boast. The reason for this is because they are divinely given honors worthy of boasting to those who need direction in matters of a divine nature. However, he continues with the words, yet of myself, I will not boast. Once again, he's being highly ironic in this. This is referring to all of the sufferings and trials he endured, which are noted in the previous chapter. Those are the things which the Corinthians thought were to be boasted in, as is evidenced by their boasting in those types of things in the false apostles. However, Paul has shown them that they are merely earthly and of no true spiritual value. And because of this, he has put the thought of boasting in those things away. They no longer have the importance to him that they once did. And such things should not be a source of boasting by others as well. Paul was a Pharisee. He was the chief of this, and he was the Hebrew of that, and on and on and on and on. He says these were all points of boasting in an earthly sense. He says there's nothing in those things to be boasted in. None. Okay? His boast is in, let me take it, what is Paul's boast in? Yes, that's exactly it. Galatians 6, verse 14. I'm going to start with 13. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, which is what he's been saying people boast in as being circumcised in Hebrews and blah, blah, blah. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. And here it is, Paul's boast. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's marvelous. If you want to boast in something, that's where to boast in. Boast in Christ. Boast in what he is. Here it is, the gospel. This is Charlie Missy's shirt. The gospel, right there. Crucified, buried, and raised. Good job. Wonderful stuff. Okay? Nobody asked me about that today. I was walking around at the store. and What? No, I'm saying at the store. I went. To, I wore this specifically because I was going to Lowe's, and I went to Publix, and uh, where else? I went some, Oh, I went to the bank, and... Anyway, so I went there. Nobody asked, what is that on your shirt? I was just waiting. This is, this is it. This they, is what they, you need. They couldn't see you at the bank in the drive. I know. I got my beard hanging over it. That's all right. <laughs> I, no, I'm not cutting it, okay? Until Hidako gives me orders, it ain't being chopped. You know what? It doesn't matter anyway. I found this out about, um, well, it's got to be 10, 12 years ago now. I had a nice long beard, and I had a person that happens to be in this church right now that nagged me, just nagged me about my beard all the time. And so what did I do? I shaved it completely, right off. I mean, completely. And this person walked right by me in the driveway, came up to the house and said, oh, it's so good to see you. And I'm going in to see Hedico or something and walked into the house. And that was that. She didn't even know that I had shaved my beard after years of nagging. So there you go. She's sitting right there. She's sitting right there. So yeah, a beard, no beard, doesn't make any difference. The what? Would that do your mommy? She had, she'd never even noticed. I, and I did it for her. She'd been nagging me for so long. I said, I'll never, I told her I'll never shave again. Okay. Anyway, um, where are we? 12-5? What? It's a vision. That was a vision. She had a heavenly vision. Huh? I didn't get paid for it. No. Okay. Um, okay. I don't even remember where I was because you guys have got me off on a tangent. Um, yeah, flame and young for Sunday. Oh, that's right. Okay. Well, I'm going to read the last uh, sentence of this paragraph again. Those are the things which the Corinthians thought were to be boasted in, as is evidenced by their boasting in those things in the false apostles. Okay. Here we are. However, Paul has shown that they are merely earthly and of no true spiritual value. 
And because of this, he has put the thought of boasting in those things away. They no longer have the importance to him that they once did, and such things should not be a source of boasting by others as well. Okay, but Paul finishes by noting that there is one type of earthly trial that is worth boasting in. Of all the fleshly things he could have boasted in, he only does so in his infirmities. Through verse 10, he will explain exactly why this is so. Life application, many of us have done things in which in the world which would others would think of as being great. Maybe we retired with a high rank from the military. Perhaps we were the CEO of a big company. Some of us may have been exceptional at some type of sport. Maybe we were on a TV show with a special talent. Ooh and ah. But what value has any of this from a heavenly perspective? This much. Zilch. Let us not boast in the things that have no heavenly value. Instead, let's try learning our Bible, telling others about Christ Jesus, and helping out in the church we attend. And when we do these things through infirmity, then we have something that we can truly boast in. Okay? 12.6. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking of the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. Okay, this is way different. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. For I will speak the truth, but I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. So that's quite different. Okay, Paul is being precise in his selected wording. What he just said or he just said that of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. Now, to show that he could and maybe even desired to boast in something more than his infirmities, he says, I will not be a fool. If he were to boast in his achievements, it would be the truth, and it wouldn't be the mere ravings of a madman. The things he would claim would seem preposterous to his hearers, and yet it would be the truth. As he says, for I will speak the truth. However, he withheld such boasting with the reason being, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. In other words, what marvelous things Paul boasts of, could they be true about him? He is weak and firm, and his speech is contemptible. The man is a living paradox. The things which he knew, had done, and had experienced were the things which people would naturally boast in. They would elevate him to an exalted position, but these things were not the things which he wanted others to notice. And so he refrained from stating them. Instead, he will focus on something of which no one, no one would normally boast in. In this, he followed the pattern of Christ, who had no form of comeliness. In him, there was no beauty that we should desire him. Those are both from Isaiah. He was humble and lowly and washed the feet of his disciples. Paul, now following that same example, will give illustrations of the things he felt it was acceptable to boast in. What the world looks for as great and worthy of note is the opposite of what the Christian should be focusing on. Life application. Doing lowly, menial tasks is not a sign of weakness, especially if you don't have to do them. Assuming such jobs is simply a sign that you are willing to ensure that what needs to be done gets done. 
Never be afraid to get your hands dirty, either literally or spiritually, as needs arrive. It reminds me of the guy that you were speaking about that you used to work with in Arkansas. And this guy knew everybody. He said he'd walk down the road with me. He knew everybody. He'd, a politician would be going by. The governor, he'd say, hey, John, how you doing there? And then he'd walk by the guy taking out the garbage and say, hey, Leo, come here. You know, he knew everybody. And he treated everybody the same. There's nothing wrong with that guy. Just because he's taken out the garbage doesn't mean he's any less than the governor that just went by. And he's probably a better guy. The governor's a politician by trade. So, you know, I mean, you just have to, you have to take people as they are. Whatever their circumstances, that's what they are. Anyway, um, if you want to get a right sense about that, I talked about that last week as well. Just go down to your projects with two or three people for a couple months and knock on doors. And you'll find out about people. You'll find out about real living human beings that you might actually find that you like them. You know what I'm saying? I mean, just sitting in your home on Saturday and washing uh, your clothes and watching TV doesn't really benefit anybody. But if you take the time and you just go out and you meet people, you're, you're going to find that people are pretty decent wherever you go. Not all of them. There are some bad people in the projects, too. But uh, they're asleep when we get yeah, they're asleep when we get there. That's true. All the murders are done by the time we get there. We have not ever seen a murder during our time in the projects, but we have seen the results of many murders in the projects. We've two dead guys laying right there in the corner one day, the British people right on the corner where we uh, uh, made our first turn. And then um, uh, what's his name? Javaris got shot and killed. And next day uh, he got shot a couple times and we'd see him all bandaged up. And finally he got shot and didn't, wasn't there the next day. And we've seen people that lost their daughter in a street shooting that evening. I mean, we've seen how many times one day we walked there and people chased us to pray. Somebody got hacked to death over in the park over there. I mean, these things happen. It's real. And somebody needs to be there. I mean, these people have nothing else to live by. Zero. So go to the projects in your local town, start knocking on doors, and you will make a difference in their lives. I assure you of it. It'll take a long time, but you will make a difference. Okay, 12-7. Earlier is better. Earlier is better. That's correct. The earlier you go, start at 9 o'clock and be done by 12 or 1, and you won't have any trouble with anybody. Those are the people that have been asleep. They've been doing what they should be, and they're probably scared of where they live in, and they just need somebody to talk to. The people that do the killing are all asleep. They're, they they. <laughs> They've done their job for the night. So, okay, go ahead. Seven, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Okay, this is a little different. And lest I be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, which he just was speaking about, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Here, I'm going to talk about what I was talking about earlier. I should have just checked the verses. and I, Anyway, we'll go through it. Um, in the Bible, there are certain verses which come with incredibly long and detailed commentaries by scholars. This is one of them. The words of Paul here have meaning, and they convey his thoughts as he attempts to explain his infirmities. The very things in which he feels boasting is acceptable because of this, scholars really want to know what he is talking about. He begins with, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. Paul's words. These are the things he spoke of in verses 1 through 4. These revelations were the kinds of things that could then make him appear to be the man in God's favor. Oh, I want to be with Paul. He's got it in tight with the Lord. It cannot be denied that anyone who claims to have had heavenly visions is normally either elevated to an unhealthy level or 
is disregarded as insane. The visions are believed. It means that those who believe the person are willing to accept that they have participated in something divine. Joseph Smith, Ellen G. White, etc. If this is so, then they are marked as special and worthy of listening to. It is unfortunately this type of thing that has led to the formation of many, many cults throughout the church age. In order that this would not happen with Paul, because his visions were really true, a thorn in the flesh was given to him. What does this have to do with his revelations? This thorn is the very thing that will be used to show that Paul is just a man with human limitations. By having such limitations on prominent display, it would take the eyes of his audience off of the sensational elements of his life and keep them on the reality of his troubled human nature. See, God is infinitely wise. He figured this out way in advance. Let's not worship Paul. Let's worship Christ, who is speaking about Paul, okay? And this thorn is described as a messenger of Satan that was used to buffet him. Those are Paul's words, messenger of Satan and buffet. Just as Satan was allowed to afflict Job, so he is allowed to afflict any of God's people by the approval of God. However, though Satan may think that he is accomplishing evil, God will always use such trials for good. We normally see these things from our perspective. Ouch, this hurts. It must be evil. Or what a terrible situation. My heart is broken. Why has God allowed this evil into my life? However, if we could just step outside of ourselves and see the entire picture, we would then understand the greater plan. Job's afflictions, Paul's thorn, our own trials, heartaches, and losses, all of these things, they're being used to serve God's ultimately good plan for his people. For Paul, there was a good reason for his thorn. According to him, it was, Paul's words, lest I be exalted above measure. He understood the exact reason for the thorn. This doesn't mean that the thorn wasn't painful, but that he could endure having it because he knew it was serving a much greater purpose. As we will see in the coming verses, he truly wanted it to be taken from him. But the Lord refused his request, and he refused for a most important reason. The question that scholars debate concerning this thorn is, what is it? A wide variety of possibilities have been submitted as to what it is. Some believe it was a moral deficiency, such as the temptation of women or the like. Others have named various physical afflictions that it could have been. Without Paul naming it, we can only speculate. One guy took the term thorns from uh, the Old Testament where the Lord speaks to the people of Israel. I'll make them as thorns in your sides and stuff like that. Speaking of enemies, and he said that Paul's thorn in the flesh is an enemy, somebody that was always harassing him, always hounding him, because that's what the term in the Old Testament, which we'll see more of that in Deuteronomy, um, uh, that's what that's speaking of. And so he made a one-to-one -one comparison. That's probably not the best thing to do in this case, but that's his prerogative. Why is it his prerogative? Because Paul doesn't say what his thorn is. So we can speculate all day long. We can, we can do all day long. Like I said, some people say it's a sexual thing. Some people say that it's a physical thing. Some people say that it's a person that's bothering him. Whatever. We don't know. However, speculation is not to be rejected outright. 
There are possible clues to what could be found, uh, which could be found in Acts and his epistles. I've already said this to you, but now I'm going to read you my commentary, so you're going to hear it again. Sorry, I didn't know that this was coming up. When one sound speculation, although impossible to be adamant about, is that it could be failing eyesight. When writing to those in Galatia, he said to them at one point that they would have plucked out their own eyes and given them to him. That's Galatians 4.15. In Acts, when Paul was standing in the presence of the high priest, he claims to have not known that it was him. Acts 23, verse 5. I'm glad that we're reading this because I can give you the verses and you can pen them down. Elsewhere in Acts, Paul, Paul's set fixed gaze is noted. This could be because of his failing eyesight. That's Acts 13, 9. When writing to those in Galatia, he told them, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Galatians 6, verse 11. This could be a sign of failing eyesight as well. He is noted to have written this way in all of his letters, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 17. Also, from Acts, it can be implied in several passages that Paul was conducted by others in his journeying. Some of the accounts seem to imply that he was simply unable to conduct himself for some reason. Failing eyesight would be a good reason. Finally, according to the pulpit commentary, the word for buffet is derived from kolophos, which is a slap on the face, and would be a suitable would be suitable to, to such a disfigurement as ophthalmalia. You get a slap on the face, and he's equating that with ophthalmalia. So that's a very good connection there. Okay. In the end, we can only guess at what Paul's affliction was, and this is for a very good reason. If his affliction was named, it could only then be applied as a life example to those who had the same condition. Truly, only they could fully empathize with Paul's ordeal. But without naming the affliction, it allows for a common empathy by all people who suffer with their own burden. Everybody can empathize with Paul. Whatever your burden is, you can say, I have a thorn in the flesh and I feel like Paul today, and that is not unjustified. Whatever your thorn in the flesh is, whatever it may be, we can look to our own infirmity and be content that God has allowed it into our life, just as he has allowed some type of unknown infirmity into Paul's life too. Kind of curious though that he doesn't mention it, and, and the reason why most people don't want to talk about their thorns. Oh, that's right. Shame. Yeah, so exactly. He's ashamed of whatever. It well, was. he could have been, or he could have assumed that they knew. I mean, he well, may have, he that's may have true. already told them that, but we don't know, and that's the important thing is that we don't know. And you're right. When we have a thorn in the flesh, and I got, I think it's 170 that I, I'm working them down, <laughs> but I don't want to talk about any of them to anybody ever. Now, if somebody emails me and they say I have a problem, I say, I know exactly what you're talking about, and here's why, okay? But I don't like talking about my own failings, the physical ones, the moral ones, the, uh, uh, I guess this is physical. Being ugly is a physical ailing. Anyway, um, so I'm kidding. Anyway, life application. If you have a thorn in the flesh, be it moral or physical, be content that God has allowed it into your life to bring him glory. In the end, he has determined that it was necessary for your life to come out exactly as he intends. If it's a moral failing, I would suggest that you work on it. Get it worked out of your life. Or if it's an addiction of some type, if you have a, a physical, chemical addiction, a moral addiction, those type of things you need to work on. It doesn't mean that God wants you to have them. It means that he has allowed you to have them so that you will rely on him through them. Okay, so that's my recommendation there. Seeing as how we're speaking about eyes, who else had bad eyes in Scripture? Bartimaeus. 
Bartimaeus. Blind man. Oh, blind man Bartimaeus. Yeah, blind man Bartimaeus. Okay. Yes, he he had real problems. Who else? Samuel. No. No. He had the two sons that were wicked, and they went... Oh, Eli, that's Eli, right. The high right. priest Eli had bad eyes. They were fixed, okay. And then another one of them, father of maybe Jacob and Esau, anybody? Anybody? Oh, yeah. anybody? Isaac, that's right. He was blind. The guy was blind. Think of what happened there. I talked about this in the sermon, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to misquote it. It was either 40 or 60 years that he was blind. And that was for the purpose of revealing the redemptive plan of human history to us. Imagine that. God had him blind and laying in a bed. I mean, it says he was in his bed, right? For 60 years, just so that he could show us pictures of redemptive history, what Christ would do instead of Adam and all of these different things. He allowed that into his life. And we look at that as a terrible thing from our perspective, but now we look back and we think, I understand redemptive history better because this man was blind for all of those years. Okay, that was his thorn in the flesh. All right. I'm sure there's other people that had bad eyes. Moses did not have bad eyes. It says he was 120 years old and his eyesight was not dimmed and his uh, vigor was not reduced. And that was speaking of his natural vigor, his energy. His energy. Yeah, we'll just say energy. energy. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. His ability to get up in the toward, toward, yes. Toward the way, yes. Thank you, Burke. Burke was a little more forthcoming than I would be. Okay. Anyway, yeah. He, he, uh, he, uh, had great eyes at 120 years old. Now imagine that. I remember when my eyes started, we all, everybody here seems to either have uh, glasses or maybe uh, contacts, I don't know. I remember for weeks and weeks, I'd come home and I'm, I'm always working, I'm very tired and I'd be reading the Bible. And I kept thinking, oh, I'm just so tired tonight. I'm just so tired. And this went on for weeks. And finally I realized one day, I can't see, but I, it took me weeks to figure it because I'm outside all day and we, I can go out right now and I can read this in the sunlight because natural sunlight allows you to see differently. I can't see almost the variations of the paragraphs. I can't see anything, but I'm thinking, oh, I'm just so tired because I could see all day and I go in and I finally eat and I go to bed and I, I just can't read. And I'm only 40-some years old when that happened. Man, Moses, he had a sweet deal. He, did. he really he did. did. 120, and his eyesight was not diminished. The what? He what? He had his own problems. Yeah, he had his own problems. That's true. He pictured the law, and so he was not going into the land of promise. So there you go. I love these numbers and Deuteronomy sermons. I got I am loving the pictures of redemptive history in them. I, I just never would have imagined in a million years when we started these sermons, as far as, uh, you know, I've read them a million times and I knew that I knew there was pictures of the Lord and stuff. I never imagined. When you get into the single words and you find out this word, oh, it opens up everything. I just, I'm, I'm so excited. I just, every time I finish a sermon, I think, last Monday I was typing one and I thought, this isn't going to have any pictures of Christ. It's all about the law. It's just he's starting to give us the laws in chapter four. And by the time I was done, I was saying, thank you, Lord. I needed that. Thank you, Lord. I kept finding these little things. And, oh, it was just so refreshing. It was well, just wonderful. I have to thank you because when I first started reading the Bible over and over again, those are the three books just that blew I would through. cringe about. I was like, oh, no. Oh. Got to get through Leviticus again. And, oh, I, you were the one that was almost in tears when we finished. Yeah. We finished Leviticus, and you said, I can't believe it's over. I, I, like, I use him as an example of, you know, Oh, my goodness. What, what verse are we in? I think eight. Eight. Okay. Did we read it? No. No, go ahead. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. 
Okay, this is a little longer here. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. You really shocked me. That was quick. Okay, 12.8. Paul's thorn in the flesh was something that he was so despondent over that he petitioned the Lord three times that it might be taken away from him. Why Paul chose to continue after the first time and to cease at three is not stated. But it could be that he first had on his mind the parable of the persistent widow found in Luke 18, 1 through 8. He knew that sometimes a prayer isn't answered right away. We've got a saying in the projects, we, we say it among each other at least a thousand times a week, is that uh, the Lord only has three answers for you. Yes, no, wait. or wait. And the third one is the hardest. It really is. If it's no, okay, well, I'm going to have to accept it. But when it's wait, you don't know. Okay, but anyway, he knew that sometimes a prayer isn't answered right away, but, there, but that we are to be determined in our prayer lives. So that could be the first reason. However, after the third petition, he ceased. Maybe this was because the Lord Jesus in Matthew 26, 39 through 46, only petitioned his father three times in Gethsemane concerning his own coming trial. Paul may have felt that to go beyond what Christ petitioned would be inappropriate. This is all speculation, okay? That's just speculating. This is all, oh, and here it is. This is all speculation, but he is clear and precise in his words. Concerning his thorn, he pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me, his words. It is significant for the believer in Jesus Christ to note that Paul pleaded with the Lord. In other words, his prayers and petitions were directed to Jesus personally. Thus, it is appropriate to pray to him and expect him to be the one to respond in whatever way he chooses. If he wants to elevate it through the Godhead to God the Father, he will do that. He is the mediator between God and man. When we pray to God, we are praying through Jesus. And Paul shows us that it's acceptable to simply plead with the Lord right there, the Lord Jesus, okay? In other words, it is to be inferred that Jesus Christ is fully God and that he is fully capable of handling his responsibilities within the Godhead for all of his people. Paul has set the example which we may now follow by petitioning the Lord in this manner. And Paul also tells us elsewhere to petition God the Father through Jesus Christ our Lord, etc., etc. There's all kinds of ways of praying, but this is one that we know is acceptable. Because if it wasn't, it wouldn't be in the Bible, right? But it is. It's in an epistle. Life application. This verse gives us a general guideline for a few important issues. The first is that we may petition the Lord Jesus in prayer. The second is that we should be persistent in our prayers. It's not that the Lord might not have heard us the first time, but that there are reasons he chooses to not respond immediately. A third reason is that there is a time when we should cease in our prayers. For Paul's particular case, it was three times. This is not to be considered a set amount for every occasion, though. He does not make that prescriptive. He just tells us what happened with him. But by telling us what happened with him, we know things that we are allowed to do. Okay, it doesn't say anything about what we're disallowed to do, but he does tell us what we are allowed to do because he has set the pattern for us. Everybody got that? He's not prescribing anything, but he's giving us allowances because he has done it. We know that it is acceptable. Okay, that theology, sometimes you have to get to it in a roundabout way. Sometimes it's very direct. It's right in your face, and sometimes it's obscure. But in cases like this, you can get to it, but you need to get to it in a roundabout way. Okay, 12-9. Right. 
He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Okay, almost identical, except weaknesses becomes infirmities in this, uh, this uh, version. Okay, this may be one of the most, and I know that it's not one of the most cited verses as far as, uh, uh, you know, like uh, somebody putting it on their wall on Facebook or something, but this is probably one of the most used verses in the Bible, I would think. When somebody writes their friend and they say, I'm really struggling, and they'll cite this one. When somebody emails me with something, I'll cite that to them, okay? It's a wonderful set of verses. Mark it in your Bible so you know where to come back to because you are going to go through your own struggles and trials. And it's a great place to go to just be reminded. Paul went through it, and Christ gave him the divine answer, and that answer is sufficient for us as well. Okay, this is 12, 9. Charlie. Yes. So I thought that the, uh, Paul stopped asking because he got Right. He got no answer. All he got was this answer right here. My grace is sufficient for you. Okay. And he well, said to me, an well, it is, but it's not the answer he was looking for is what I'm saying. Yes. So, but I thought maybe Paul asked three times and stopped because Jesus replied, my grace is sufficient for you. So he didn't need Well, that pain. could be. And that's what he's saying there. That's what he's saying. But it could be that he just perceived that. Okay. It does say that. And he said to me, how he said it, we don't know. Okay. It could be that he said it to him through not responding. It could be that. So you see what I'm saying? This, I would go with, he literally said it to him because Christ has spoken to Paul at other times. He came and stood by him and he said, all of you on the ship are going to be saved, etc." Okay. So, you know, don't worry and don't fear. And so he has personally spoken with Paul and I would agree with you on that. That is probably the reason, but he did say that three times I petitioned the Lord. So Okay, one way or another, but I think you're probably right about that. The answer came to him, and so he stopped praying. Okay, we'll go with that. Okay, Paul's, uh, I'm sorry, 12.9. This verse is one which has brought 2,000 years of comfort to those faithful Christians who are facing affliction, anguish, pain, or trial. Knowing that Christ Jesus spoke to Paul, as she said that he did, and it says here, and that his words are recorded for our benefit allows us to know that the Lord is speaking to each of us through his words, okay? Paul has asked three times for his thorn to be taken away, but the divine answer came back with soothing words for the path which lay ahead of him. The thorn would remain, but the Lord would be there with him through it. What the words he said to me, this is Paul, he said to me, mean can only be speculated upon. Did the Lord audibly speak to him? Was it in a vision or was it no response in the response itself? In other words, did Paul deduce that this was the Lord's chosen path for him while reading scripture and contemplating the silence concerning the removal of the thorn? Though the third option seems unlikely at first, isn't this exactly how we receive our response? Because when we don't get a response, we have to say it's the Lord's will. Okay, that's why I'm not dogmatic about this. We pray for relief. We wait on an answer, and while we read Paul's words here, we realize that the affliction we are suffering is intended to be there. Maybe Paul was reading Job, and he came to this conclusion. I'm making up here. Okay, yeah, hang on. Yes, go ahead. Yes, same here. But that's not in the the Bible. There is no red letter. That's just what they do. Okay. That, in other words, when. 
That's what's being inferred there. But that doesn't mean that that's the case. And scholars debate this. What I'm doing is giving you commentary on that, that it could be that he did speak to him literally, or it could be that the response came to him simply by reading the book of Job. And so the Lord would have spoken to him. Okay. But the red in a Bible is something that is inserted. It's not something that actually belongs there. That's just, and you'll see at times, I've actually had Bibles where they have quoted Jesus right in the Gospels and they forgot to put it in red. Okay. And I've seen things that are in red that shouldn't be in red. So, you know, but this one here, that is just them highlighting his words in red, saying that that is, they believe that Jesus actually said that. And you can highlight it in red anyway, because even if he didn't actually read those words, Paul is putting that he read those words from the Lord in some way, shape, or form. Paul is the apostle. He is the one that is giving us the words of Scripture. And because he is giving us those words of Scripture, they are from the Lord, either directly or indirectly. It's not something that we're going to get, but it is something that he did get. So you could make them read even if they weren't actually audibly said to Paul. Okay, you got a point? Yeah, and uh, okay, so the Greek does not have any punctuation. No. Yeah, so the quotation marks. Yeah, absolutely. Quotation marks aren't in there. You're not going to find periods. There's all kinds of stuff. And we've gone through this a couple times, and we won't do it tonight because, oh, we got two minutes. Um, uh, We're not going to finish this verse now. Um, There's no way. Um, uh, We're not going to get this verse done. I'm going to stop right here, and we're going to start right here. Uh, I'm just going to, we're going to read nine again next week because we've only got two minutes, and there's no way I can do it. But um, when it comes to Bible translation, there is... um, uh, a million things that have to be taken into consideration. Almost all of Jesus' words in the Gospels are known to be Jesus' words. The writers of the, the Gospels in particular were very, very particular about making sure that you could differentiate the words between Jesus and anybody else that is speaking. They're very good about that, but there are times where it's hard to determine. That is even more so in the epistles and in the book of Acts, okay? Is this person speaking? Is that person speaking? And so on. But what Jim said is correct. There's no punctuation. There's no, uh, for the most part, Greek punctuation would be different, but they don't have all of the things that we do that show us that this is an ongoing uh, narrative or if this is a uh, discourse between two people or if it's a discourse, where does it end or where does it begin, etc. So there's a lot of inferences that have to be made And usually they are very, very good inferences. And the reason why is because these people are trained scholars. And they have not only that, but they have the words of the church fathers and others handed down over the millennia. And so we have a very, very good sense of what is said in Scripture. It's not something we need to worry about. People will debate, as I said, over issues like this. And we'll read that again next week. But um, uh, be, be sure that the word that we have is fine, okay? There's nothing like, oh, this is questionable or this or that. Um, uh, A good place to go to to find out variances in what somebody's doing, I've got one more minute, is the book of Job, okay? In the book of Job, if you watch the sermons that we did on that particular passage, um, uh, the very final chapter is translated by everybody, everybody one way, except one person, Robert Young, and he's the only one to translate it properly. Everybody says that Nineveh has 120,000 people in it. Uh, Okay, did I say Job? I meant Jonah. Thank you, Jonah. Thank you. Anyway, book of Jonah. Watch the Jonah sermons. The last chapter is completely different than the way almost every single Bible is translated. And you wouldn't know that unless you read the Hebrew and you were willing to say, oh, wait, this doesn't say 120,000 people. And it has completely changed the ending of the book of Job, completely. 
Okay, so Jonah. did I say Job again? Okay, there you go. The book of Jonah, J-O-N-A-H. Okay, I tell you, I'm, I'm absolutely miserable today, so we're going to say a prayer and get out of here. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the chance to uh, speak on your word, and thank you for people that correct me over the things I keep saying wrong. Um, it's wonderful to have a class that is uh, aware enough and alert enough and also awake enough to, uh, to help me out through these things. And we uh, just ask that you uh, respond to the prayers that were made at the beginning of the service uh, for our nation, for the people that are in distress, and for those that are looking for salvation of somebody in their families. We would pray that you would attend to those things and with your great wisdom respond accordingly. And we'll leave it in your capable hands knowing that you are way more intelligent than we are, way wiser, and the ways of the world are not always known to us, but they are known to you. And we can trust that, and we thank you for it, and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. The what? Don't turn me into a Joe Biden. No, no Joe Biden there. That's right. Okay, we're going to go to break.